Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Sports Island, your getaway destination for sports news. I'm your host, Rick Mitchell. Man, we had another jam-packed week in sports this past week, and in that we had some more athletes test positive for the coronavirus. Uh, We got the full details on the implemented Major League Baseball season. We had an NBA retirement. Uh, the NFL's first event cancellation due to the coronavirus pandemic. We had a former NFL MVP sign with a new team. And, of course, another great week in the PGA Tour. And we'll dive into all that here in just a little bit. But uh, before we get started, I just wanted to remind everyone that may not have listened to last week's episode... This podcast focuses on sports only. Um, There's no political, racial, or social issues that are discussed, making Sports Island your true getaway for just sports news. And I also want to thank everyone who tuned in to last week's episode and anyone who liked, shared, or told a friend about the podcast. Uh, I really do appreciate the support from everybody. I didn't really know what to expect but I really did appreciate all the positive feedback that I received. So thank you guys for being the best part of Sports Island. Now, we'll start off this week, we're going to talk about Major League Baseball. And if you listened last week, you know that I was pretty harsh on Major League Baseball in last week's episode. But it was well-deserved criticism. And really, I still cannot believe the petulance by both Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association over money. But last week, uh, Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred, he was interviewed by the Associated Press. And in that interview, Commissioner Manfred said, quote, We need to get back on the field, and we need to, in a less charged environment, start to have conversations about how we, And the we in that sentence is the commissioner's office, my staff, the clubs, and the Major League Baseball Players Association, the players, can be better going forward. We owe it to our fans to be better than we've been the last three months. Yes, you do, Commissioner. Yes, you do. Major League Baseball's actions over the past few months have been completely outrageous, and they've already tarnished a season that's going to be baseball's shortest season since the year 1878. And over this past week, Major League Baseball announced the details of their 60-game season. Players are going to report to training camp uh, July 1st, which is uh, this upcoming Wednesday. Uh, They're going to be at their home facilities for training camp rather than their normal locations of Florida and Arizona. Uh, The regular season is set to begin on July 23rd and 24th, and the regular season is expected to run until September 27th, and you'll have the playoffs beginning on September 29th and running all the way through the end of October. The trade deadline is set for August 31st, about a month or so after the season starts. And the details of the season are pretty interesting regarding rules and, and whatnot. But the format of the schedule is finalized. 
and they're calling it a regional schedule. Um, the exact schedule still needs to be made, but we at least know the structure of it. Uh, every team is going to play 40 games against divisional foes. So that's 10 games against each of the other teams in their division. And teams are also going to play 20 interleague games against their geographical equivalent. So that means that the American League East is paired with the National League East. The American League Central is paired with the National League Central. And the American League West is paired with the National League West. Now, the purpose behind those groupings is to help limit the traveling distance for each team. And of course, some teams are going to end up traveling farther than others. But Major League Baseball wanted to keep the teams as geographically close as possible. And considering the extremely shortened season of 60 games, I think that that's probably the fairest way to do it. You keep the integrity of the divisional games while you still have some interleague games as well. And the playoff format, that's going to remain the same for this season. Um, Each division is going to send their winner to the playoffs along with two wildcard teams from each league. There were talks of expanding the playoffs to 14 teams, which would have meant one additional playoff team per league, but that didn't come to fruition, uh, at least this season. Uh, I would certainly keep an eye on that for next season uh, because discussions on that are are ongoing. And, and really, I can see that ultimately happening over the course of a normal 162-game season. Probably my favorite rule of the implemented season is the universal designated hitter rule. So this means that both leagues will be using a designated hitter and that pitchers will not be hitting. Now, I live in Dallas, which is an American League city, of course, home to the Texas Rangers. So I don't see a whole lot of games where the pitcher hits. But, I mean, let's be honest here. This rule needs to be a mainstay moving forward. Nobody is excited when a pitcher gets up to the plate. Well, I mean, I take that back. If you like bunts or strikeouts, then you probably enjoy watching pitchers hit. But uh, pitchers are as close to an automatic out as can be, really. And, of course, you have your outlier good-hitting pitchers such as Michael Lorenzen of the Cincinnati Reds, Noah Syndergaard of the New York Mets, Zach Grinke of the Arizona Diamondbacks, and then Shohei Otani of the Los Angeles Angels, who, of course, is also a position player. But you're not counting on them for any offensive production, and nor should you. That's not their job. Pitchers are becoming more and more dominant on the mound, so teams need their best hitting lineups to score runs. And I don't care if this makes me a non-traditionalist, but the hitting lineup should not include the pitchers themselves. So I'm definitely excited to see the mandated designated hitter rule in full effect this season, and I hope that they keep that in place moving forward into the upcoming seasons. Uh, Another good addition to the rules in the implemented baseball season this year is the new feature in extra innings. At the start of every half inning in extra innings, a base runner will be placed on second base. So the purpose of this is to increase the likelihood that a team is going to score, thereby shortening the length of the game. 
Now, I'm all for a good, close baseball game, especially one that goes uh, down to the wire in the bottom of the ninth. But the extra inning games that turn into five- and six-hour marathons are just not good for the game of baseball. And unless it's a playoff game, very few people have the attention span to last that long. So I view this as baseball's equivalent to the National Hockey League's three-on-three overtime in their regular season. And for anyone that watches NHL hockey, you know that the three-on-three overtime is fast-paced, exciting, and likely to result in a game-winning goal. And the Major League Baseball, they, they implemented some rules this past season to help speed up the game, such as limited mound visits. And if baseball truly is wanting to speed up the game, placing a runner on second base to start every half inning of extras is a good way to ensure that an extra inning game would, would end quicker than it normally would. Another new rule for baseball this season deals with rosters. Teams are allowed to carry 30 players on their active rosters, and that number is going to drop to 28 after two weeks and then 26 after four weeks. And a cool feature about the rosters is that baseball is also going to have a COVID-specific inactive list that players can be placed on if and when they test positive or show symptoms. So there will be no set amount of time for a player to sit out on the COVID inactive list, unlike the injured list, which requires at least a 10-day stay. And probably the most outrageous rule of this baseball season is that of no spitting. Players can't spit saliva, sunflower seeds, or tobacco. And I'm not really sure how that's going to be enforced considering most of those are just natural habits. But it is listed in the new guidelines, so they have some protocol in place for that. And um, pitchers, they can't even lick their fingers as they normally would to get a better grip on the ball. They have to take a wet rag with them out to the mound to assist them in getting their fingers wet. And I understand the concept of that, But wow, like, welcome to the new Major League Baseball, I guess. But moving on from baseball, we'll head over to the PGA Tour. Um, We had another great weekend in the PGA Tour this week at the Travelers Championship. And I sure hope this continues to be a trend because it is fun to watch. Uh, This weekend didn't have quite the drama that the last two weekends have had, uh, but there was still plenty of good golf being played. The week actually started off a little rough. PGA Tour had some hiccups to start the week um, with positive COVID tests and player withdrawals. And if you recall, the, the week started off with Cameron Champ testing positive, forcing him to withdraw, then you had the caddies of Brooks Kepka and Graham McDowell test positive, so they had to withdraw. And then Webb Simpson, who was last week's winner at Harbortown, had a family member test positive, so he withdrew as a precaution. And after the first round of the tournament on Thursday, Denny McCarthy tested positive, so he was an automatic withdrawal for the rest of the tournament. 
contact tracing was done, and every other person in the traces tested negative, so that's a good sign. But after all the dust settled, seven players withdrew from the Travelers due to coronavirus concerns. And so with all those challenges, the PGA still pulled off a safe and successful weekend. We saw another very low-scoring weekend this weekend at the Travelers. And on last week's episode, I wasn't sure if the low scores we saw at Harbortown were the result of the course playing at a par 71 instead of a par 70 like it had the week before at Colonial. But this weekend, the Travelers played at a par 70, and the scores were close to those at Harbortown. Ten players this weekend were 15 under par or better, and 19 players were 13 under par or better. So that pretty much settles that debate. The players are entirely locked and loaded, and they are firing on all cylinders. And man, it is a thing of beauty. Dustin Johnson ended up winning with a score of 19 under par. Kevin Streelman finished second at 18 under par, and he was in the second-to-last group, which was right in front of Dustin Johnson. Streelman finished at 18 under, which was one shot behind Dustin Johnson at the time. So all Johnson had to do to win was par 18. And you're thinking, okay, well, you know, a bogey forces a playoff hole. We'll see. So Dustin Johnson goes out on 18, and he pipes a 351-yard drive right down the middle of the fairway. He hits an easy wedge in. And he pars the hole. It's his 21st victory on the PGA Tour. And Dustin Johnson has not been playing great recently. He's only posted three top 10s in his past 15 events leading up to the Travelers. He entered this weekend ranked number six in the world rankings. But man, he sure looked better than that. When his putter is on, which it was this weekend... He is right up there at the top as the very best player in the world. Let's revisit Rick's picks to click from this past weekend. Last week, I gave Colin Morikawa, Abraham Anser, and Bryson DeChambeau as my picks to click. And I owe Colin Morikawa a sincere apology. Like All I did was talk him up as Mr. Consistent, having made 22 out of 22 cuts to start his PGA career. And then all he did was go out there and fire a plus three through two rounds to miss his first cut. And I'm not going to say that I jinxed him, but I definitely did. So I apologize to him for that. I clearly missed that one. But hey, at least I clicked on the other two. I mean, two out of three isn't bad, right? Abraham Anser finished at 13 under par, which was good for 11th. Uh, He had two bogeys in each of his four rounds. So if he cleans just a few of those up, he's sitting up there near the top. And Bryson DeChambeau finished at 15 under par, which was good for 6th. And his 6th consecutive top 10 finish. The guy keeps piling on top 10s, and he is going to win one of the next few tournaments that he plays in. 
So this weekend, the PGA Tour heads over to the Detroit Golf Club in Detroit, Michigan for the Rocket Mortgage Classic. And golfers Dylan Fratelli and Harris English have already tested positive for the coronavirus, so they're going to be out this weekend. And this week's field at the Rocket Mortgage does not have near the firepower that the past few fields have had. Uh, There's only going to be three out of the top ten golfers in the world playing, and only 15 out of the top 50 they're going to be in the field this weekend. So that should make my picks to click this weekend pretty interesting to follow. So that being said, here are Rick's picks to click this weekend at the Rocket Mortgage Classic. I'm going to start off with Victor Hovland. He finished tied for 11th at 13 under par this past weekend at the Travelers, and he led the field in strokes gained tee to green. He is quickly becoming um, one of the better young players in the game, and he finished tied for 13th in the Rocket Mortgage last year. And I just read this stat this afternoon. Hovland is 35 under par since the start of the PGA Tour restart a few weeks ago, which is third in the Tour. And with the lack of elite star power in this week's field, I can definitely see him making some noise. My second pick to click this weekend is going to be Tyrell Hatton. And Hatton has four top tens in five starts in 2020, including a win and a third place finish in his last two starts, which his last two starts were the Arnold Palmer Invitational, where he won, and then the RBC Heritage at Harbortown, where he was tied for third. And he leads the tour this season in strokes gained tee to green, and he's second in strokes gained in putting. So I'd look for him to have a chance on Sunday. My final pick to click this week is going to be Tony Finau. He missed the cut this past week at the Travelers, so he's almost a lock to make the cut this weekend. And Finau is a birdie machine. He has posted 10 consecutive rounds under par in, despite the missed cut. Both of his rounds this past week at the Travelers were under par, and he still missed the cut. And with the Detroit Golf Club playing at a par 72 this weekend, I can see Finau's scores being really low. So we'll move on from the PGA Tour, and we will go around the island where we do some quick hit topics in various sports. And there's three NBA topics to get into here. The first one, longtime NBA great Vince Carter. He formally announced his retirement this past week after 22 seasons in the NBA. He's the only player to ever play a game in four different decades. I mean, just think about that. He's 43 years old. He started his career in 1998. He won the Rookie of the Year. Um, He played for a slew of teams in his career. Uh, And by a slew of teams, I mean roughly half the NBA. He's played for, you ready for this? The Toronto Raptors, the New Jersey Nets, the Orlando Magic, Phoenix Suns, Dallas Mavericks, Memphis Grizzlies, Sacramento Kings, and Atlanta Hawks. He made the All-Star game eight times, and 
I would say Vince Carter's probably most well-known for his high-flying acrobatic dunks. Um, And he ended up winning the slam dunk contest in 2000. But congrats to Vince Carter on a hell of a career. Now, also in the NBA, they conducted their initial mass COVID testing. And 302 players were tested. 16 were positive. So that's about 5% positive tests, which is similar to the national average. And there's so few players playing in this NBA restart in Orlando that you hope that that 5% doesn't get any bigger, especially since those players are going to be locked into that bubble that we discussed last week. Um, Also, the NBA announced their official schedule for the remaining 88 play-in games before they start their playoffs. And there's some good ones. I think the final playoff spots should come down to the wire. Um, The top six teams in each conference are already locked in, so only the seventh and eighth spots are up for grabs in each conference. In the Eastern Conference, I mean, that thing's that thing's pretty much wrapped up. Uh, the seventh and eighth spots are currently occupied by the Brooklyn Nets and the Orlando Magic. Uh, the ninth spot belongs to the Washington Wizards. Washington's five and a half games behind Orlando and six games behind Brooklyn. And with each team only playing eight games to finish the season, it would take a colossal collapse by either the Nets or the Magic to miss the playoffs. And... If I had to say which team would slip, I would say probably Brooklyn. Uh, The Nets are going to be without Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, DeAndre Jordan, and possibly Spencer Dinwiddie. I guess he's on the fence about skipping right now. But if there was a team to maybe slip, I would say it's the Brooklyn Nets because of that. Now in the Western Conference, they're in a similar situation. The 7th and 8th spots are currently occupied by the Dallas Mavericks and the Memphis Grizzlies. The Mavericks have a 7-game lead on the Grizzlies for that 7th spot. And there are 3 teams that are 3.5 games behind the Grizzlies chasing the 8th spot. And those teams are the Portland Trailblazers, the New Orleans Pelicans, and the Sacramento Kings. The San Antonio Spurs are just behind those teams and four games back of the Grizzlies. So shy of the Mavericks losing all eight of their games, they are pretty much guaranteed to be in the playoffs. And it's going to be really interesting to see who comes out on top for that eighth spot. Uh, And I can really see any of those teams taking it. Uh, Three and a half games is a lot to make up over the course of eight games, though. So if I was to bet, I would say the Grizzlies are probably going to stay in the 8th spot. But you can't rule out the Blazers, Pelicans, Kings, or Spurs to at least close the gap. Now how about some college football? There was a strange story that came out of college football this past week. And it wasn't about anything recent. Um, One of the greatest, if not the greatest college football game ever played was the 2006 BCS National Championship between number one USC and number two Texas. Um, Both teams were undefeated. USC was on a 34-game winning streak and had back-to-back Heisman winners on its team. 
they had NFL talent all over the field, including four of the top 10 picks in that uh, 2006 NFL draft. And of course, we know Texas won thanks to Vince Young's heroics, hook em horns. Uh, but Reggie Bush, he had just won the Heisman Trophy a few weeks before that game, which made him and Matt Leinart the first pair of teammates to both win the Heisman. And several years later, Reggie Bush's Heisman Trophy was vacated due to him being found guilty of accepting gifts and benefits while playing at USC. Well, Reggie Bush was interviewed by Pat McAfee this past week, and Bush confirmed that after his Heisman Trophy was vacated, the Heisman Trust had offered the trophy to Vince Young for him to accept, since he was the runner-up. And in that interview, Reggie Bush told Pat McAfee, quote, That's a true story, and that's why Vince Young is my guy. I respect and appreciate him because Vince showed me love that even some of the people closest to me didn't even show. And so after being offered Reggie Bush's Heisman Trophy, Vince Young had a conversation with then-Texas head football coach Mac Brown, and Vince Young told Mac Brown that he was not going to accept the trophy, and I guess Mac Brown supported Vince Young's decision. So basically, Vince Young got offered the Heisman Trophy after it was taken from Reggie Bush, and he turned it down. And if you recall, Vince Young had finished second in the Heisman voting with 79 first-place votes, and of course Reggie Bush won it with 784 first-place votes. Now, I've gone back and forth on this, but if I'm Vince Young, I'm probably accepting that Heisman Trophy. I mean, Young probably feels as if he should have won it in the first place, given the season that he had. And I understand Vince Young's stance of, well, if they didn't give it to me in the first place, then I don't want it. But if I'm him in that situation, I'm taking it. I mean, who knows if the Heisman Trust is ever going to give Reggie Bush that trophy back. And if I feel like I should have won it in the first place, I'd rather it sit on my trophy case instead of in a closet somewhere. And nobody's going to argue that Vince Young wasn't deserving of the Heisman that year, especially with the year he had winning the national championship over USC. But if we're being completely honest, Reggie Bush should not have even had that trophy taken away from him in the first place. Like He's not the first, and he certainly won't be the last college athlete to accept gifts and benefits while on campus. Um, Bush earned that trophy with his performance on the field, and those alleged benefits that he received did not affect his ability to just be an absolutely electrifying college football player. And since enough time has passed since those sanctions and the fact that Vince Young just declined, you know, to to take it, maybe the Heisman Trust will give Bush the trophy back. Who knows? But either way, uh, it'll be interesting to see if what happens with that. So we'll move along to the NHL. And uh, in the National Hockey League, they announced that 15 players have tested positive for the coronavirus since their Phase 2 
plan to return to play uh, voluntary practice opened on July, uh, June 8th, rather. So since June 8th, players have been allowed to go into the facilities and practice. There's been a um, little more than 250 players that have participated in these voluntary workouts since June 8th, and 15 of them have tested positive. So that's about 6%. Uh, again, relatively close to the national average on positive tests. But the main story in the NHL this past week, the NHL held their annual draft lottery this past weekend. And man, I cannot believe what I witnessed there. Like, where do I start with this? Let me preface this by saying that I absolutely despise the draft lottery systems that are found in the NHL and the NBA. I just don't understand why the lotteries are used. Like, why should the worst teams in the league be entered into a pool to have a chance at the first few picks instead of just receiving the first few picks? And why can't all sports just adopt the NFL's draft system where literally the worst team picks first, the Super Bowl winner picks last, and everybody else falls in line between them based on their record? That's the easiest, the fairest, and the best way to determine a draft order. But here's how the NHL's draft lottery turned out. The NHL expanded their playoffs, so there's only seven teams that did not make it into the playoffs. Well, those seven teams know their draft positions already, and they have picks two through eight. So who has the first pick, you ask? Well, that first pick belongs to a mystery team that is to be determined. Now, this mystery team is coming from the group of eight teams who lose in the playoff qualifying rounds. Are you kidding me? You heard that right. A team that currently has a chance to win the Stanley Cup is getting the first pick. That just reeks of fraudulence. I would expect something like that to come out of the NBA, who prides themselves on being top-heavy but certainly not from the NHL. Let's take the Detroit Red Wings. At season's pause, the Red Wings had played 71 of their 82 games. They had a grand total of 39 points, which was 23 points lower than the next closest team, the Ottawa Senators, who, by the way, got the third pick in the draft. The Red Wings had a .275 points percentage in 71 games, which means they recorded a point in the standings in only 27% of their games. That stands as the lowest mark in the salary cap era. They were the worst team in the league this season by a mile, and it wasn't even close. So surely they'd have the first pick on lockdown, right? Wrong. Not only did they not get the first pick in the draft, They didn't get the second pick or the third pick either. They drew the fourth pick in the draft. And pardon my French, but that's bullshit. And speaking of French, the consensus top pick in the draft is French-Canadian star Alexis Lafreniere. 
And he is, by all accounts, expected to be an impact player in the National Hockey League. He's the most surefire pick in the draft. And not only is he not going to the worst team in the league, he's going to a team that's currently sitting in the playoffs. What kind of backwards-ass pageantry is that? Like, I get the NHL expanded the playoffs to include four extra teams from each conference that may have had a chance to get in had the season not paused. But if we're being honest, most of those teams probably weren't going to make it in. And even at that, their chance of winning the lottery would have fallen somewhere between slim and none. But now since those teams are in the playoffs, they currently have a chance to win the Stanley Cup and somehow get the first pick in the draft. The way that these expanded playoffs are structured, you have teams 5 through 8 in each conference playing the four teams from each conference that got in because of the expansion. And if you know anything about the NHL playoffs, you know that there's going to be at least a couple of the playoff teams to lose their qualifying round matchups to some of the teams that snuck in because of the expansion. So that means that a team that would have been in the playoffs had the season continued on also has a chance to win the top pick in the draft. And some of the teams that are playing in the qualifying round are the Edmonton Oilers, the Nashville Predators, Winnipeg Jets, Chicago Blackhawks, the perennially good Pittsburgh Penguins, and last year's Eastern Conference finalists, Carolina Hurricanes. None of those teams would have had a chance to get the top pick, and yet here we are. If they lose their best-of-five qualifying round matchup, they are then entered into the eight-team pool that has a chance to get the top pick. That is beyond absurd, and frankly, it's total crap. The NHL needs to fix their draft system, and in a hurry, because they're going to turn out like the NBA and start becoming top-heavy. Um... Back to Major League Baseball for just a quick second. There's been three players to announce that they will be skipping the shortened 2020 season. Those players are Washington Nationals first baseman Ryan Zimmerman and pitcher Joe Ross, as well as Arizona Diamondbacks pitcher Mike Leake. And baseball has already had enough issues over the past few months. So the last thing that they need is for players to start opting out of this season. But in the National Football League, we had a former league MVP sign with a new team, and that's free agent quarterback Cam Newton. He signed a one-year contract with the New England Patriots. The contract is mainly incentive-based, and it's worth a maximum of $7.5 million. So he's going to have to earn his money. But let's be honest here. Did anyone actually think that the New England Patriots are going to stroll into this season with second-year player Jarrett Stidham and career backup Brian Hoyer as their top two quarterbacks? Because I sure didn't. And if this isn't the most New England Patriots signing ever, I don't know what is. 
Newton is going to have to check his ego at the door, though, because Bill Belichick is not going to tolerate his shenanigans. Uh, Cam Newton has a career record of 71-59-1. He's thrown for 29,041 yards on a 59.6 completion percentage. He's thrown 182 touchdowns against 108 interceptions, and he won the 2015 NFL MVP when he took the Carolina Panthers to the Super Bowl. Now, Cam Newton has also rushed for 4,806 yards and another 58 touchdowns. And he's just a dominant quarterback when he gets the ground game going. And now he joins a Patriots organization that has won five out of the last nine Super Bowls. I mean, that's almost unfair. Like, how does New England keep doing this? Cam Newton is certainly one of the 32 best quarterbacks in the league. I can't believe that it took this long to sign him. The reason it took so long to sign him is because of what everyone's been talking about with him, and that's his health. Is his shoulder fully healed? I mean, he played in two games last year, so he's had all season and all offseason. He got it fixed surgically, and so I'd bet that his shoulder's healed. Uh, You know, I'd say that it is healed, but, I mean, only time's going to tell on that. But either way, this signing keeps New England at the top of a greatly improved AFC East division. And a quick side note on the Patriots. To the surprise of no one, the New England Patriots got fined $1.1 million and they're forced to forfeit their third-round pick in the 2021 NFL Draft as penalties for filming the then-one-win Cincinnati Bengals sideline during a Bengals-Browns game this past December. And the Patriots played the Bengals the following week. Why are you trying to cheat against a one-win team? Like, your training staff could have beaten the Bengals, and you're filming their sideline? That deserves a, come on, man. But shockingly, the Patriots would go on to beat the Bengals in their game the following week. And also in the NFL, we had our first event cancellation due to the coronavirus pandemic. And that casualty was the annual Hall of Fame game that's held in August at the Pro Football Hall of Fame induction ceremony in Canton, Ohio. Um, This year's game was slated to feature two of the most iconic NFL franchises in the Dallas Cowboys and the Pittsburgh Steelers. And being the Cowboys fan that I am, I'm obviously bummed that the game got canceled. And while usually this game features a lot of second and third string players, it's the NFL's preseason kickoff. So any chance we get to see live NFL football, we jump on it. And it is slightly troubling that this game got canceled in terms of moving forward with the preseason and the regular season. But all the reports that I've read state that the National Football League is still expected to start training camp on July 28th and the regular season on September 10th. So if football can start on time and pull off a full season, I think that's going to help revive this country from the hellhole that has been the year 2020. 
But that's going to wrap up the second episode of Sports Island. I hope you guys enjoyed it even more than the first episode. And if you did, please tell your friends or anyone you know that may be interested about it. Uh, Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the Sports Island podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. Sports Island is available on all major uh, podcast platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And you can also find Sports Island on Facebook at Sports Island Podcast. But I hope you all have a good week. Stay safe, be well, and we'll catch you on Sports Island next week.